Okay, guys, welcome back to our Clearing the Plains reading series. Uh, this one took a little longer than the last one to come out. Um, I'm going to say it's going to take longer than a week-ish, even, to get these out. Um, maybe they'll just come out whenever they're ready. Um, I think the last, the last installment was Chapter 2, and that was about a month ago. I'm still reading the book, don't worry. Uh, I'm just doing other things that are taking priority over uh, recording uh, over recording this. But since I'm doing this just for fun, for myself, basically, and uh, whoever happens to be listening, it doesn't really matter. Schedule doesn't matter. So let's, uh, let's keep that in mind and dive right in. Going to try doing something a little bit different than uh, the previous chapters today. Um, I'm not going to... Instead of going through the chapter page by page and pointing out things, I think I'm just going to talk about a couple things that were interesting to me during the chapter. If you have the book, you've read the chapter, you've read this anyway, so I don't need to give a commentary, a page by page commentary. But uh, I'll just talk about a few things that are interesting to me. Maybe they'll be interesting to you. Uh, In the process, I'm just learning about this stuff. That's it, so... Okay, let's get started with uh, an overview of Chapter 3. It's called Early Competition and the Expansion of Trade. Uh, In the 1770s, the indigenous middleman role in the fur trade is squeezed out as the British Hudson Bay Company and the independent Canadian traders, the the newly minted Canadian traders, establish more accessible trading routes in the boreal forest, By this time, most prairie First Nations had acquired horses, allowing them to more efficiently hunt bison and generate a surplus of meat, which they then sold to the traders, who are now flooding the fur-producing regions. The trade of commodified bison meat would be the foundation of the prairie economy for almost a century afterwards. People from the marginal land in the boreal forest moved to the parklands and plains to participate in this new economy. The continental smallpox pandemic spreads through the boreal forest, killing untold numbers. Several Cree groups are so hard hit, they cease to exist as distinct ethnic identities. So that's what's going on in the chapter. The first thing that was interesting to me was thinking about some of the events that were that happened between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is called Early Competition and the Extension of Trade and Disease, 1740 to 1782. And there's some interesting things that are happening uh, behind the scenes in this chapter. Uh, Just to give some context and background to situate the events that take place in in this chapter, the most important one is probably uh, the Seven Years' War and then the British acquisition of New France and the emergence of Canadians, people born in what is now Canada, taking on uh, the development of a, of a new Canadian identity, the emergence of a new Canadian person. The Seven Years' War lasted seven years, 1756 to 1763. Through my, uh, my extensive Wikipedia research, uh, I found these things out about it. Uh, It's widely considered to be the first uh, global conflict in history, and it was a struggle for world supremacy between Great Britain and France. You think world wars were invented in the 20th century? 
think again. 18th century, folks. Um, the form it took in North America was what we know as the French and Indian War of 1754 to 1763. It was a theater in the Seven Years' War. It, it pitted the North American colonies of the British Empire against those of the French, each side being supported by various indigenous tribes. The French and Indian War broke out before the Seven Years' War, and it led to the wider global conflict, which then became the Seven Years' War. World War breaking out in Canada. French Canadians apparently call it the Guerre de la Conquête, meaning War of the Conquest. I didn't know that. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know many French Canadians, obviously. I don't know if, if they call it that or not. Wouldn't surprise me. Both the French and the British, like I said, were supported by indigenous allies. The French colonists were vastly outnumbered by British colonists. Uh, estimates seem to vary, but the British had about 2 million colonists in North America at the time. The French, about 60,000. So the French relied on their indigenous allies to do a lot of the fighting for them, whereas the British could uh, just rely on uh, British colonists. Some of the British indigenous allies are the Iroquois, the Catawba, and the Cherokee. The French have a lot more indigenous allies. The Abenaki, the Mi'kmaq, Algonquin, Lenape, Lenape, Ojibwa, Ottawa, Shawnee, and Wyandotte. Uh, Wyandot, also known as the Huron, as far as I know. As a result, the uh, the fighting was sparked by c- the colonial scramble for land in North America, uh, kind of like some other world wars. Uh, world War One started largely by the colonial scramble for land in Africa, so you can see kind of these same patterns at play again. Both Britain and France claimed land west of the colonies on the Atlantic seaboard that would eventually become the first American states. French expansion into the Ohio River Valley cited as a major contributing factor. Remember from previous chapters, the Ohio River Valley is important to indigenous societies before colonization. It's important to the colonizing societies as well. Major trade route, good farmland, that kind of thing. We remember from previous chapters, it was home to the people belonging to the Mississippian culture. Cahokia, uh, those kind of folks. The French expanded southward and westward from New France quite a ways. They built forts and controlled land from what is now the Maritimes through Quebec, Ontario, and Manitoba, down the entirety of the Mississippi River from what is now Minnesota all the way down to Louisiana. Vast, vast swath of land. Bigger than uh, Rupert's land. Sorry, Rupert. France controlled the majority of North America, which was accessible to Europeans uh, north of Mexico. The French were hemming in the British along the eastern seaboard and undermining uh, the Hudson Bay Company's control of the Hudson Bay fur trade. This put the French in close proximity to the western edges of the British colonies on the Atlantic coast and interfered with the British plans for western expansion. Probably the most important battle for those of us in Canada from this war is the 1759 Battle of the Plains of Abraham, also known as the Battle of Quebec. I've only known it as the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, so maybe the Battle of Quebec is what uh, French Canadians call it again. Uh, In that battle, the British defeat the French, securing control 
of what is to become Canada in September 1759. British General James Wolfe defeated his French counterpart, General Montcalm. Both generals died in the battle. Victory for the British, defeat for the French, defeat in life for Wolfe and Montcalm. After the battle, uh, the French capitulated uh, Quebec City to the British. The consequences of this war still felt in Canada today, obviously, um, and reverberate all over the world. Uh, this is really the time where the British Empire is really uh, ascendant and would be until the 20th century. Um, obviously, the consequences of, of the outcome of this battle um, still affect uh, national politics in Canada, provincial politics in, in Quebec. Uh, the, the Quebec sovereignty movement stems right from from this moment. Okay, the consequences of the Seven Years' War in 1763 ended with the Treaty of Paris. This is a global conflict between Britain and France and allies of Britain and France. France lost the war, so in the Treaty of Paris, France lost all of its territory in mainland North America, except for the territory of Louisiana, west of the Mississippi River. France retained fishing rights off of Newfoundland, and the two small islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, uh, which it still retains to this day. So that's kind of interesting. Off the coast of Newfoundland are two small islands, which are French assets, which belong to the country of France. And there are people who live on these islands, and they're French citizens. They are citizens of the country of France, to this day. Uh, France actually still retains possession of a, of a lot of area around the world, a lot of islands, a lot of insign- seemingly like insignificant territories, but they have, uh, they still have like a, a global reach because of, uh, because of small territories like St. Pierre and Miquelon. During the course of the war, the British expelled the French from Acadia in 1755. Uh, Acadia being a colony of New France, roughly corresponding to what's now the Canadian Maritime Provinces. Many French-speaking Acadians famously resettle in New Orleans, uh, become uh, today's Cajuns, greatly influence the uh, culture down in the American Deep South, down in Louisiana. Um, the Seven Years' War, as you can imagine, was extremely costly. It nearly doubled Great Britain's national debt. Uh, the Crown needed sources of revenue to pay it off and attempted to impose new taxes on its colonies. Uh, these attempts were met with increasingly stiff resistance by the colonists until the troops were called in to enforce the Crown's authority. And uh, this is what ultimately leads to the start of the American Revolutionary War, in a nutshell. These are all really broad strokes. Uh, the uh, different types of history nerd out there are going to quibble with everything that I say, I imagine, even the one in my brain, but I'm just practicing talking about this stuff, so give me, give me a break. France eventually returned to America in 1778 during the American Revolutionary War with the establishment of a Franco-American alliance against Great Britain. The Seven Years' War was Britain's springboard into uh, world imperial dominance, um, especially in naval power. France did have supremacy in Europe. Prior to this, it was halted until after the French Revolution, 
and the emergence of uh, some minor Corsican noble named uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, he did some stuff, and he changed some stuff around there in that Europe place. Uh, Prussia comes into its own during this time, challenging Austria for dominance within the German states. So the European balance of power is kind of shifting these uh, uh, empires or or I guess the aristocracy of these various regions that have pretensions to empire are uh, starting to get starting to get imperial here in Europe. Uh, some of the allies, some of the European allies of the British, Prussia, uh, a bunch of the lesser German states that are uh, allied with the British uh, or happened or happened to have rulers that were related to the British monarchy. Uh, the British monarchy was German at that time, I believe. Still is. Portugal was a British ally. Russia at the end was a British ally. Uh, the French had Spain, the Habsburg Empire, the Habsburgs ruling Austria-Hungary, Bohemia, uh, which is now the Czech Republic, and other places in mostly Central Europe. We have Sweden on the sides of the French, uh, Saxony, German region. They had Russia at the beginning, and the Mughal Empire in India. Some of the territories involved in the fighting. Uh, during the war, Great Britain conquered the French colonies of Canada, like we said, Guadalupe, St. Lucia, Martinique, Dominique, Granada, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines, Tobago, French factories i.e. trading posts in India, the slave trading station at Goree, the Senegal River and its settlements, and the Spanish colonies of Manila in the Philippines and Havana in Cuba. France captured Minorca and British trading ports in Sumatra, uh, Sumatra, Indonesia, while Spain captured the border fortress of Almeida in Portugal and uh, Colonia del Sacramento in South America. A lot of these places get return to their original European imperial overlords, um, but Britain keeps French North America, uh, use it uh, and their other colonies to launch their uh, world-spanning empire. Lasted for centuries, took uh, two subsequent world wars in the 20th century to uh, beat that empire into submission. They're uh, obviously still salty about it. So that's the Seven Years' War, and that's happening uh, during the events of this chapter, or shortly before. So there you have it, the Seven Years' War, global spanning war for dominance in the international trade, emergence of political economic systems that are with us to this day. You can only imagine what the the experience of living through a seven-year world war would have been like for uh, a common soldier or a peasant in any of these countries where fighting happened. Or if you're just an indigenous person in one of these places where a European empire set up a colony and you're just uh, sort of just grabbed off the streets, thrown on a ship, or pressed into some sort of a infantry regiment, what that would have been like. But a lot of these places a lot of these empires they sound familiar they end up becoming uh like the rich european and, and north american countries they shape a lot of our modern world so i guess like a lot of the theme of this reading series is like uh 
what is old is new again. I don't know. Uh, some sort of uh, eternal recurrence, wheel of time thing. Anyway, like you can see the the patterns from a couple hundred years ago, how these events shape our lives today. I guess that's really what I'm trying to get at with uh, with doing this series and, and learning about this stuff. Anywho, um, some of the terms that we're encountering in this chapter is Canadian. The word Canadian is getting used a, a lot more. Um, and that happens after the British take over New France. British people come here as colonists. They have children after a generation or two or three or or however long it takes these people who are born in north america stop identifying as subjects of the land with, where their families originated and start identifying as something new in this case canadian so when you're reading in this book and they're talking they're switching from british and french traders to canadian traders these are north americans these are people whose families have origins in europe born in north america calling themselves canadians probably or that we're identifying as Canadian. Um, famously, if you're in Canada, you probably remember the uh, Canadian Heritage Minutes on TV, series of short vignettes in the 90s, 80s and 90s. They're really trying to like uh, push the origins of it or shore up uh, Canadian national identity. And so there's, there's one uh, I remember about the origins of the word Canada, Maybe you remember it too. Um, generally, the word Canada is accepted as being of Iroquois origin, meaning village or settlement. And in the uh, Heritage Minutes commercial, uh, the European explorer, like a doofus, misinterprets it as meaning the whole land. So that's why we have. So that's why Canada is called Canada, and not just that specific village. I'm probably misremembering things, but. I think that's the gist of it. Um, Canada was part of the larger colony of New France. New France was huge, like I said. The British colonies of Canada were just a part of New France. Um, the British renamed the Canadian part of New France uh, Quebec. Eventually it became Quebec, the province of Quebec, obviously. Um, in 1791, they divided Quebec into Upper and Lower Canada. Upper Canada included what is now Quebec and the Labrador region in Newfoundland, Lower Canada, the area, like the heartland of Ontario now, what is still like the Canadian heartland, really, uh, around the Great Lakes. Um, Upper Canada, interesting that at some point in time in history, Ontario actually was called Quebec, so take that for what it is. Okay, let's define some terms. A factory. This one's an interesting one. We, we th usually think factory is a place where it's a big building where a bunch of workers are making things. And that's not really what it means in this case. Um, we have things like York Factory. Uh, York Factory wasn't a big building where people are, are making things. There's not big machines and gears and wheels turning or anything like that. Charlie Chaplin isn't getting like shoved into the uh, innards of some gigantic machine with, a, with an over, comically oversized wrench and getting past through a conveyor belt of the complex Rube Goldberg machine for hilarious effect. That's not happening in these places. Uh, it's a trading post. It's a Hudson Bay Company trading post. That's what they 
called them. Uh, it's called a factory because the person in charge was called a factor. It was a specific role, a, a job description. A factor is an employee of the HBC who receives and sells goods on commission. A, the commission is called a factorage. So that's, uh, that's that. That's why it's factory. Something that keeps popping up in the book will probably always be a factor. There's, really, there's very little you can do to get, get away from it. And that's uh, place and, and people's names and, and uh, which terms to use for different groups and places. Um, the difference between what are called endonyms and exonyms. Endonyms are words that people use to describe themselves, and exonyms are words that other people groups use to describe other people groups. The difference between what you call yourself and what other people call you, that could be different. A lot of indigenous groups in this book and still now, like, have a number of different names. Some of the some of their names are what they call themselves, and some of the names are what other either their other indigenous groups calling them that. And then Europeans just assume that's the name for that group, and then keep on calling them that, and then that's what we call them now, by extension. Uh, that sort of thing's going on in European terms, like. In English, we call German people German. They live in Germany. Uh, the German people themselves don't call themselves German. They don't live in Germany, not in, not in the German language. They're Deutsch. Deutsch people live in Deutschland. German people... German... Deutsch, the Deutsch live in Deutschland if you're Deutsch. If you're in English, German people live in Germany. It's that, that sort of thing. I think the principle that we want to follow is... Um, to call people as much as possible their own terms for themselves, what they would like to be named, just out of, like, ordinary decency. But in some cases, we don't really have an option, and I'm uh, not the best equipped to know when to use the right term or not. Um, as we go along, we'll get better at that, but again, uh, forgive me for using the wrong term. I think an example is that comes to mind is like the Dakota versus the Sioux. They're, those names refer to the same people group or parts of the same people group, but Dakota is what that people group calls themselves. Sioux is an Anishinaabe-derived name, which I believe means snake, and so the Anishinaabe are calling the Dakota snakes. And that's a derogatory term, and that goes back generations, <laughs> hundreds of years. There's obviously you know, cultural and political factors uh, at play why that would happen. Um, so, I don't know. I think uh, there's some Dakota who only want to be known as Dakota. Other D Dakota people don't mind being called Sioux. I had a co-worker who was named Sioux. S-I-O-U-X. An indigenous co-worker. I don't know what indigenous group he was from, but... Uh, Depending on the context, you can infer what the best practice is. But uh, for the purposes of this book, maybe just for simplicity, unless I know specifically what the endonym for a people group is, I'm going to go with uh, what the book says. And I'll probably mix them up and, and uh, garble the pronunciation. But we're going to keep doing it anyway. So you're going to have to forgive me.
Okay, I'll go through the chapter just a little bit, pick out a couple key points. I'm not going to go through it with a fine-tooth comb. Okay, with the, the changing global political economic landscape, obviously affects the fur trade and the people engaged in the fur trade. It affects uh, indigenous communities. The economic strategy on the plains is changing. Like we said, the fur trading posts are located more conveniently, thanks to the French. The Hudson's Bay Company kind of just hangs out in their remote posts and waits for people to come to them. They start changing it a little bit. But uh, the middleman role, like I said, is is being reduced. It's They're being squeezed out. They have to change their strategy if they want to remain uh, viable uh, in this economy. It's what we call innovating. Um, so a lot of the middlemen are changing, too. A lot of the middlemen are starting to hunt bison and processing it for sale to the people at the fur trade fur trading posts. That's a major shift. I think we talked about it in the last episode. Hunting bison for mass processing and sale wasn't a culturally wasn't a thing that was being done beforehand for uh, religious reasons and for good environmental stewardship reasons and for the long-term viability of uh, the Plains people reasons. Smallpox is spreading to the Plains now because of this, because more people are coming to the Plains to, to hunt bison in, in this way. That's really the, the central thrust of this chapter. We got uh, Lavarandre doing his thing, lots of exploring, see lots of uh, Lavarandre stuff here in Manitoba. Uh, Lavarandre, he got around. Um, he, the French, I think it's the Lavarandre expedition, they went as far southwest as the Black Hills in South Dakota. So that's kind of interesting. And uh, Lavarandre, that guy, he was, the book says he was relieved of his commission in 1744 for pursuing exploration at the expense of trade. The guy was doing too much exploring. He was wandering around too much, having too many adventures, finding out too many new interesting things. Uh, his job performance and efficiency was suffering, so he had to be uh, let go. Sorry, Lavarandre, you're fired. Profit over people, folks. Even in the 1700s. What can you do? We have the founding of uh, the Paw, Manitoba. Mid-1700s. That's a really old settlement for Manitoba. The Paw. 1700s. Way to go, the Paw. You're an old town. You're a, a much older town than most places. Good job. Because the French are in the interior, HBC HBC's changing its strategy a, a little bit. You'll find that here in this chapter. They're, they have to go more into the interior, too. They don't really want to, but uh, they got to innovate to compete. And uh, because of the, the British conquering of, of New France, we have a new uh, British uh, merchant class emerging in what used to be New France. Uh, we have an er- we have a, an English we have an English upper crust developing in, in Montreal um, in what was once a exclusively uh, French city. That, of course, you could imagine leading to some sort of conflict. I I imagine that that that, that conflict still exists. There is a a, a significant uh, English speaking uh, population in in Montreal. Still majority French though. But the, but the interesting thing is that the the English speakers those 
they're generally more well-to-do because they come in and they establish like an owning class, a merchant class. The the upper crust and the French remain like the hoi polloi, the working class, the uh, the people who do the day-to-day stuff, generally speaking. On page 29, you have the Assiniboine communities being uninterested in participating in the new economy. Um, it says, possibly because... Uh, Possibly because they knew the the beaver was so important for the preservation of their uh, water supply in the arid grasslands, so the Assiniboine are largely abstaining from uh, from this fur trade, from this uh, fun new uh, fad of uh, global imperial capitalism that is uh, sweeping the continent. Okay, the British takeover of of uh, Quebec and, and New France it changes the fur trade. Large amounts of Canadians are, are heading west. It's diverting trade away from the HBC. HBC has to uh, innovate new strategies to remain competitive, like we said before. The Canadian traders coming west from uh, Quebec or Canada, uh, they weren't united in any single uh, company. They weren't like the HBC. The, these were... These were following like the French method, like the uh, the independent uh, entrepreneurs coming out. They were all uh, not only competing against the HBC, but like competing uh, with each other. And then, as the market got saturated with these uh, independent traders, these uh, libertarians of the boreal forest, they come in, and uh, and their methods for pro- for securing profit become more and more cutthroat, as you would as you would imagine. They would have to be. Uh, at the bottom of page 32, top of 33, it says, Under this regime, the key to securing trade was a constant and growing stream of alcohol. From the start, traders at Cumberland, that's the HBC post at Cumberland House, complained that they could not compete against the Canadians and their liquor, even though Canadian prices were twice as high as those of the HBC. Sounds like some sort of uh, Ricky versus Mr. Leahy scenario. So what would induce a trader to, that is, I'm assuming, the Canadian prices for the goods that they were selling were twice as high, not for the furs and goods that they were buying were twice as high. So what would induce a trader, an indigenous trader, coming in with your furs or your processed uh, bison to uh, sell your goods for at such a disadvantageous uh, rate could it be that these independent traders are plying the uh indigenous traders that come in with alcohol a few you know a few shots on the house that sort of thing maybe more probably more uh suddenly uh, you get, if you got a taste for it if you're in that state um, maybe it's, uh, it's easier to, uh, let your goods go for a val- for a price that is, uh, below what their actual value is. I'm just speculating, obviously, but you can kind of, kind of see how it works. Gotta love the good old-fashioned, honest trade between equals in the marketplace. Page 34, you have a reference to pemmican. That's the processed bison meat. The, the processed commodified bison meat is pemmican. That's what the traders are taking from the plains and bringing to the posts. And then the fur traders, 
in the boreal forest themselves, they're eating the pemmican. It stores really well. It lasts a long time. Great thing to have on hand where food is scarce. It's nutritious, relatively, I imagine, good enough to sustain you. That's why pemmican is valuable. Uh, we also have some more accounts of uh, abuse and violence uh, that the that this new uh, that this change in the fur trade is is bringing about. It sounds pretty chaotic. Um, middle of page thirty four, it says the a trader is describing tactics of of his Canadian rivals. Quote: When the Indians came to where the French guard was, they made them drink, and seized on all their horses and goods, and guarded them in and locked them up within their stockades it's just some of the some of the tactics that are going on at play this creates chaos basically a really chaotic environment uh for indigenous groups and the traders themselves kind of everybody lots of uh, lots of dirty shenanigans happening there's of course violence and bloodshed there's brawls retribution inter-community conflict tribal warfare, uh, you name it. The HBC even has to relocate a trading post, at least one, uh, because of the violence in the original location. That's the bottom of page 34, by the way. Top of page 35. I'll just read this because this is interesting. Amid the growing violence between the indigenous population and Canadian traders, the latter sought to undermine the resolve of the few HBC men in the West through misinformation. In December 1779, Thomason was told that Cumberland House had been destroyed, but the trader dismissed the news, adding, There has been many false reports made by them to the natives concerning us, sometimes telling the Indians that your honor's ships is cast away, and at other times, we are all dying of the, of the smallpox. By the end of the year, the planes were too dangerous for travel, even by employees of the HBC. Miss Canadian traders using misinformation to undermine the uh, the HBC, telling the uh, indigenous traders that uh, oh the HBC the HBC ships are uh, shipwrecked, cast away, uh, or everyone's dying of the smallpox at the HBC factory. Uh, amazing. Where do you see like misinformation being used today? Uh, Russia rigged the election. COVID was manufactured by China, and. Uh, Socialism is when uh, the government does stuff, and that's bad. What's the purpose of it? It's still the same. Think about it. And all the problems that it causes your community and your family. Jeez. It's just, uh, it's just economics, folks. It's just, it's just people acting in their own self-interest. Just getting some profit. That's it. Causing chaos, violence, bloodshed, playing people off each other misinformation come on these types of things are even in page 35 are even contributing to a to a famine lack of food and this is like human human profit seeking behavior leading directly to uh, to a famine hear about all if you if you uh, spend any time in uh, a right wing family or uh, conservative circles you've probably heard a lot about the uh, the famines that communism caused in the 20th century uh, got some, got some fur trade caused famines out here in the uh, 18th century. If you want to talk about that too. Skipping ahead to page 38, we have a uh, mention of a guy named uh, Peter Fiddler. 
And this is important because my partner, Jill's stepdad, is a direct descendant of Peter Fiddler. And Peter Fiddler was a British-born HBC surveyor and explorer. Um, sort of like a understudy to uh, David Thompson, or I think he, he replaced David Thompson on one expedition anyway. Uh, he was born in uh, Bolsover, Derbyshire, England, died at Fort Dauphin, uh, near Winnipegosis in present-day Manitoba. He married uh, Mary Macagon, a Cree woman. Together they had 14 children. They had a big family, 14 children. It's a big Métis family to this day. So that's Peter Fiddler. That's a family connection. My partner's family connection. And Peter Fiddler's... uh, journals he kept a journal a diary uh during his expeditions and and that's a primary source for a lot of fur trade and hbc history uh, around this time that is the late 1700s there are a bunch of uh, monuments and stuff uh for him around the prairies and in uh his and at his birthplace in bolsover learning from uh, wikipedia here um in his will he requested that anything remaining from his other bequests be placed in a fund and the interest be allowed to accumulate until August 16th, 1969, at which time the whole would be paid to the next male heir in descent from his son, Peter. As of 1946, this fund could not be located. What happened to the Peter Fiddler Fund? The Peter Fiddler Treasure. A mystery. Maybe someone in the Peter, in the Peter Fiddler family would like to investigate or knows but i imagine uh, funds like that uh, might have a tendency to go missing maybe the bank uh conveniently misplaced it and thought maybe uh those poor uh metis folks uh, they're not gonna miss it they won't come after it who's to say on page 39 the english and most of the canadians were immune to smallpox, having been exposed to it in in childhood and having some uh, built-up immunity. They didn't really die during uh, smallpox outbreaks as much anymore, but they didn't know why. I don't know, maybe they thought uh, God was blessing them or or something, or that they had some sort of like innate uh, hardiness or disease resistance that uh, the indigenous people who were dying around them didn't have or that uh, god was was favoring them somehow that's just my speculation um so that's kind of interesting that they were immune largely and didn't know why probably had something to do with uh subsequent generations of canadians viewing indigenous people as uh maybe like uh, weak or less resistant less constitutionally hardy than them for some reason i don't know Again, I'm just speculating. And then at, to close out the chapter on page 40, we have accounts of uh, we have accounts from traders at, at posts uh, bemoaning the loss of their uh, workforce due to smallpox, which is kind of interesting. They're complaining that uh, all their uh, indigenous uh, workers have died, and it's uh, left them in quite a pickle, prefiguring the COVID-era labor shortage here. Uh, the furs must flow, as we've said before, and uh, if you're a 
if you're a factor at a trading post and you're not getting you're not getting the furs brought in uh, because of a smallpox epi- epidemic, uh, the boss is going to be angry. So shame on your uh, shame on your workers for getting sick. They shouldn't have done it. They should have should not have had such a weak constitution. And uh, so that sets up chapter four: despair and death during the fur trade wars, seventeen eighty three to eighteen twenty one. The picture is getting bleaker here. We're trying to keep our spirits up as we're as we're reading, but a lot of this isn't like uh, it's not a happy story, and the news isn't really going to be that great. So um, I'm trying to keep the tone uh, a little bit light, but uh, at the same time, like I know what kind of book I'm I'm reading. I know what the history and and the story is. So we're gonna get th- we're gonna get through it. Trust me. Um, We'll see you for uh, chapter four. Catch you later.